Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, welcome. Uh, welcome to the program. It is uh, May 31st, Toodaloo May, and uh, it's Friday. Whew. This has been a even though Amy was just pointing out it's been a short week since Monday was a holiday. It's been one of the longer weeks uh, in my personal life. Good God. Anyway, here I am, still still up. Um, I'm fearful this show is going to be Trump-heavy, and I don't want it to be. Um, if anyone has any suggestions to save us from uh, from that, please feel free to uh, call and or email. Um, you know, I look through everything and 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 the chaos um, that this man is creating uh, from you know the Pacific and Asia now to Mexico certainly in our country, it is just, uh, well, I repeat myself. The surprise announcement last night that has as many Republicans, I think, freaking out as Democrats, that uh, in just 10 days, uh, the president has uh, unilaterally decided to impose uh, a import uh, uh, tax on uh, any goods coming into this country from Mexico. Uh, the, the, this is intended not to balance an imbalance in trade between the two countries. He is using this as a punitive measure to get Mexico to do more about stopping the immigration coming through its country. It's not Mexicans. Used to be Mexicans. But the thing is, the Mexican economy has improved to the point where many, many, many fewer Mexicans are heading across the border. Uh, instead, we're seeing Guatemalans and uh, Nicaraguans and uh, people from El Salvador uh, coming in but having to traverse Mexico, obviously, before they get to our border. So he is uh, telling the Mexican government, if you don't stem uh, this uh, flow of uh, migrants, um, we're going to continue to, to put a tariff on any stuff coming out of your country into our country and all this does is penalize us and it really penalizes the struggling American auto industry uh, that's a tax on us since so many uh, of certainly um, automakers and other manufacturers in this country in order to keep a presence in this country have um, exported yes jobs to Mexico um, in which components of 
the cars that are built here are made in Mexico and then brought back into this country. They will now, uh, because of the tariff, be uh, more expensive. And the automakers uh, pass that on to people who are buying their cars. Uh, This will hurt American consumers. It will hurt American automakers. It will hurt the American economy. And if it hurts the Mexican economy, which is its intent, then we might be seeing more migrants crossing uh, or attempting to cross into our borders, across our borders, because then the Mexican economy is going to suffer and people there will be uh, perhaps hurting and desperate to uh, find a job. Uh, This would be crushing for Detroit because since NAFTA... their supply chain is 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 coming right out of Mexico into our country. Uh, Mexico is close to becoming our largest trading partner, ahead of China, ahead of Canada, and this is how we are going to treat them. This has the potential of blowing up this uh, latest uh, uh, accord uh, meant to um, supersede NAFTA. It, it, this is, this is going to tank the markets I mean, globally, I would imagine, today. Uh, I, I just, this guy is, um, he is just a one-man wrecking crew. He is, uh, he is... He is creating such tumult and unnecessary chaos and pain every day. And it's clear he really isn't listening to anybody. Who was he calling? He called Wednesday night, late Wednesday night at 11 p.m., he was on, this is after Mueller did his uh, little 10-minute uh, white bread presentation, and uh, it freaked Trump out, and he was on the phone to his despicable crowd of what passes as friends. He really has no friends. Um, looking for solace and uh, support, and, I mean, he turns to the likes of, uh, I'm already forgetting his name, Who's that disgusting former Fox News, uh, the biggie? Uh, can't even think of it. He's blessedly been out of our, um, the former top host. Can't even think of his name. That's who Trump turns to. And I understand, not because I've been watching it, but reading that speaking of Fox News, apparently... Uh, their, you know, top legal guy, this former judge Napolitano, has been uh, apparently very vocal about saying that the Mueller report is damning. And he's been freaking out uh, the Fox hosts who regularly expect him to toe the party line by saying, uh, this looks like, yeah, this guy would have been indicted. 
if he were sitting anywhere but in the Oval Office of, uh, of the White House. So I keep trying to take some solace in the fact that um, that more and more people seem to be waking up to <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Listen to me. This is me trying to, you know, find something something positive in this. Um I thought Trump Trump scared me yesterday. The little news clips I saw, the clip in the driveway with him freaking out uh, about Mueller and um, making like just insane accusations. I mean, they, they aren't just lies; they're 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 slanders. Um, calling the people who who investigated him, who wrote the report, Mueller's team calling them the worst human beings in the world? I think he said that. The worst human beings in the world. Yeah, right. And Kim Jong-un? He's your pal. I know. You think he's a fine fellow. Vladimir Putin assassinates people too, left and right. You really like him too. But these uh, civil servants... (laughs) doing their um, constitutional duty are deemed the worst human beings in the world. He uh, continued to suggest that Robert Mueller had a vendetta against him and uh, because of some fees at a Trump-owned golf club that... And that is a lie. It is a proven lie. It is so much of a lie that even Steve Bannon has called it ridiculous. I don't know. Oh, Roger came up with a topic other than Trump. Thank you, dear. His subject line is non-Voldemort topics. One, the rain. (laughs) Yeah, so this is the second rainiest May in Pittsburgh on record. Um, Where did I see that since... We now are getting annually two inches more of rain than I guess we did 50-some years ago or something. I read someplace else. I mean... Anyone who thinks we're going to end up in a very swampy, humid uh, climate, I think, here. That's my bet. More mosquitoes, more bugs, more sweat. That's what's going to happen. More greenery, though, I would think. Yeah, the rain is something, and um, we really can't complain, given what you're seeing um, in the in the Mississippi River Basin, I guess. Jeez. And if... Well, don't get me started about sort of flood insurance uh, that the feds underwrite. It's insanity uh, to keep 
rebuilding when it's clear that the floods are are becoming an annual event. You can't. You got to move. You got to move. I'm sorry. You got to move. A lot of Americans got to move back from the water. Um, an Uber driver in Chicago, when, one of my attempts to get out of Chicago, I was on my way to O'Hare, um, he was from Morocco, and we were driving through this unbelievable storm <laughs> that was hitting Chicago as well. And uh, he started talking about the change in uh, climate. And he said, uh, I come from the Sahara. And he said that he did not ever remember in his life there snow falling in the Sahara. And I said, there's snow in the Sahara? He said, yep. On more than one occasion. I guess that's what they call climate change, right? Um, You want me to talk about pirate injuries? I have to tell you, I (laughs) I haven't been paying attention. I have not. I was taken if I there was any sports that was interesting me at the in the last months it's been the NBA and uh my sort of hometown team the Milwaukee Bucks and uh, I was really into it until of course uh they collapsed against Toronto and I do see that um in the first game of the finals the Raptors beat the mighty warriors. So, um, not that we can necessarily expect that to continue, but I don't know. Wow. That's, I haven't been, I have not. I have to admit, I look at the box scores every once in a while, and I'm glad to see, at least last time I looked, they're either at 500 or above. But, uh, you know, until uh, the management of that, uh, te- uh, of that team invests in it, they're just going to be a second-tier team. I mean, it, through no fault of the players, it seems to me. That's my. I was a. I had tickets to pirate games for the last twenty, uh, about twenty-two, twenty-three years, and I finally pulled out last year. Oh, I was looking at it through much of that time as a charitable donation, really. I was. I wanted to support him. I didn't want him. I wanted the town to have this baseball team, and I don't know. Uh, Franklin Graham, that is as awful a subject as Donald Trump, so I'm not going to touch that. But thank you for um, those other topics. Somebody else has uh, texted me and said, um, I mean, or emailed me. And about the passing of uh, a football player, (coughs) Bart Starr, uh, MVP, Hall of Famer, winner of the first two Super Bowls, 
uh, Green Bay Packer and how um, he he passed away uh, this week and wondering if I have any stories about Packer games. Well, I mean, I got tons of stories about Packer games, but I think I've told them. I mean, obviously my biggest story is the Ice Bowl um, in which Bart Starr scored the winning the winning touchdown. Uh, Bart Starr lived uh, about a mile from us. My mother's best friend now lives in, in that house. Nice house. <laughs> Not palatial, just nice. Bart Starr was um, a fine human being. He was Phi Beta Kappa. He was bright and sort of this... Boy Scout, Eagle Scout type, um, Southern gentleman. Uh, Green Bay, when during the Lombardi years, was a, a really small town. It was population of about sixty thousand, and uh, so it wasn't unusual, obviously, for us uh, living there to, uh, you know, know these people. Susie Lombardi uh, was my age, so, you know, we had friends in common, knew each other. Um, it was it was sort of a lovely way to, to grow up. And uh, there was really only one place to play golf, one country club, and certainly Lombardi and Starr and Nitschke and all so many of the other players belonged to that. And my mother, being such a crazed golfer, uh, knew them all, and they knew her. And she um, she was reminded of a story about Bart Starr, because I was with my mom this weekend when we learned he had died. Um, and he always called her Mrs. Miller, even though, I mean, well, so she's 96, and he died at 85, so he was 11 years her junior, but he... He always called her Mrs. Miller. Hmm. Good man. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you, though, for just letting me uh, avoid the horrors of uh, our news. Chuck has a few observations on the news this week. He says, on Wednesday night I was watching Brian Williams at 11 p.m. on MSNBC, and halfway through the show they ran a commercial for Sean Hannity's show on Fox. Huh, isn't that interesting? He says, I couldn't believe it. I rewound the segment a couple of times because I thought maybe I had misunderstood, but no, it was a commercial for... Hannity show on MSNBC. Well, I I don't know. I I guess I don't know. Does the F I should know this. Does the FCC mandate that unless a commercial is offensive in some way and it wouldn't be that you politically don't like Johnny uh, that uh, a, a station has to accept it if the people are willing to pay. I mean, or maybe MSNBC just thinks, you know, I don't care. I'll take some money from Fox. I really don't know. 
We certainly have heard of stations locally and network turning down commercials, but commercials that they deemed uh, offensive in some manner. Um, You'd also have to ask is, what is Fox doing? Maybe it's just Fox trolling MSNBC's audience. Because why would um, Fox, looking for to advertise one of their shows, why would they look to MSNBC's audience when the odds are that the tribalism we're in now, uh, that there's no one watching MSNBC who would watch on hand? It's it's odd. I have no, uh, I don't know. I'm puzzled by it myself. Uh, Chuck also says Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend is a former Fox talking head, Kimberly Guilfoyle. She was, oh dear. Chuck, this is upsetting. Was introduced last night by Chris Cuomo as the newest CNN political pundit. They hired this babe late of Fox News who now is Don Jr.'s girlfriend as a political analyst on CNN. I want to barf. These media, I'm sorry guys, these media companies are... Chuck says, I was wondering why CNN would do this, and then I proceeded to watch Cuomo surgically refute all of her talking points and show her for what she really is. Well, maybe. You know, um, all these networks have uh, people that from the other side that they put on to uh, shield them from um, from the uh, obvious that truth that that they are partisan uh cnn less so than msnbc and fox but um i don't i i really try not to not to watch much at all it is seriously bad for your your mental health and since your mental health uh, figures in your physical well-being, I would suggest that it's, you need to cut back, Chuck. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I said yesterday, I want to apologize, I think it was to little Tony who wrote, and it was about the uh, USS John McCain and the covering up the name and the ship because if Trump saw it, he'd freak out, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think little Tony said something about, I disagreed with, I said Trump will not be happy. He'll be angry at the people who did this because it backfired and made him look, you know, bad. And I was wrong. Uh, Trump said 
Somebody did it because they thought I didn't like them, okay? They were well-meaning. He didn't get upset about this at all. He totally understood why they would do it. They intended to uh, save him from the horror of having that damn John McCain, any, even if it's just on a on a ship, that name anywhere in his purview, apparently. They were well-meaning, said the President of the United States. Um, <clears throat> in the New York Times, <coughs> uh, editorializing about uh, this, Trump's... Uh, narcissism and the way it played out in in Japan uh, reminded us of this because as I said we we over the last two years have just become inured to how crazy things have become I I, I, I think And the Times says this, it's no secret that Trump's ego is fragile. At the start of his tenure, he was so upset that his inauguration crowd had been smaller than Barack Obama's that he had his press secretary lie about it and then made the Park Service (coughs) or someone scared out of their mind at the Park Service then edited made a phony picture to make his crowd look larger? That was day day one. That was day one. And remember how astonishing it was that he was bragging about something that was clearly not true? And then how <coughs> it was Sean Spicer... <coughs> came out and lied to the press corps and lied and everybody knowing it was a lie and all of this to salve his ego <coughs> and that we were not quite used to that yet those who had thought that once he had taken the oath of office, he would rise somehow to the occasion and uh, be more presidential than the candidate Trump had been. I, I mean, he obviously, um, we learned very quickly with the inaugural crowd nonsense what we were heading into. And it wasn't just that. And then he went on to not be able to bear the fact that Hillary Clinton had received more votes. And <clears throat> you'll rec- re- will recall, excuse me, I'm having trouble talking today. You will recall that he formed a commission, an electoral integrity commission. <laughs> Coming from Republicans, the words electoral integrity are always funny. Um, to prove, I mean, remember that? To prove that the um, three million uh, people had voted illegally. 
Whatever happened to that? Was there a report? I don't even remember. This pathetic man. Fragile. Fragile. It makes porcelain look like steel. His fragile widow ego. Now informs... American foreign policy and our stature in the world and I oh God. So here I am back with them. And then the Times points out a, 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 one of the latest indications we've had about how the fear of him freaking out uh, because of his ego. Uh, is playing out in ways that affect our national security. You will recall that we learned just last month. Time flies. We learned just last month that the former uh, head of Homeland Security, the lovely Kirsten, put him in cages, Nielsen, uh, was did keep in her role as Homeland Security chief, kept trying to talk to Trump about our uh, the integrity of our electoral apparatus, given what the Russians had, in fact, done in the 2016 election, which elected him. And his latest chief of staff, uh, Mick Mulvaney, told Nielsen, "Uh uh-uh, you are not getting to the president and you are not bringing this subject up with him. It's a sore subject with him because it reminds him that a lot of people think that the only reason he won the presidency was Vladimir Putin and the KGB or whatever passes for the KGB now put him over the top. And so the integrity of our entire electoral system is still very much where it was in 2016. Nothing's been done. It has been totally neglected at the federal level. Some states are taking some action, I guess, as much as they can. But at the federal level, there's been absolutely nothing. And the only reason being that the president's fragile ego will not tolerate even a conversation about it. Dear Lord. Oh, Bree suggests, Chuck, this is uh, for your question, I think, about those Hannity ads popping up in a MSNBC show, Brian Williams show, Bree says, you know, those ads could be popping up in what is the local cable window. So the ads that we're seeing in Pittsburgh on MSNBC or CNN might be slightly different because there's places where the local affiliate that is carrying it can stick 
my nose is running, excuse me, can stick uh, ads. But, oh, I'm sorry. I can't find my Kleenex. Um, ah! Amy, you got some? I, whatever. It's a possibility that that might not be, God bless you, it might not be the national, uh, the, the national, uh, might not be MSNBC accepting it, but the local cable company. Okay. Who knows? I don't know much of anything anymore. I don't think. Hey, um, a guy whose name I can't pronounce, <laughs> but who writes really good stuff about media <coughs> for the New York Times, uh, James Pan, it was, was, it's a Polish name, and guys, I just can't, I, I can't even take a swipe at it. Um, he talks about why we got to see Mueller uh, testify. And he says because this is how Americans, this is how we get, we're informed. We are not informed by reading 400 plus page dry as hell reports. Um, the number of Americans who have read the Mueller report are, I mean, is, as a percentage of Americans, wouldn't even rise to 1%. How many of you have read the report? I have not read the report. I've read bits and pieces of the report. I have not read the report. And I would imagine that the vast majority of you have not read the report. So if people like us who are more politically engaged than the average American haven't managed to read the report, then the reality is, is the only way we're going to really learn what's in that report, where it's not filtered through a reporter, <coughs> is if Mueller sits at a table with a microphone in front of a panel of uh, lawmakers and answers their questions. And the reason being, and this is how the gentleman with the unpronounceable name says it, God bless Mr. Mueller for his quaint faith in his fellow citizens. But let's be honest. This is America. We wait for the movie or the television adaptation. And that's the only way things get through. Some Americans read, God knows I'm one of them. Or they certainly read analyses written by people who themselves <laughs> actually read the report. Yet, this guy says, even for those hardy print types, there is a power to images and voices on a screen. 
he points out that everything Mueller said on Wednesday in that 10-minute He said, TV, begrudging TV foray as zesty as a slice of white toast. Everything he said in those 10 minutes had been true on Tuesday, had been true on Monday, and the Monday before that, and the Monday before that. But it was news, big news on Wednesday because it came from the horse's mouth and we Americans paid attention and in fact that is when Fox News people watching Fox for the first time thought you mean there's something in that report that said that the president wasn't exonerated yeah, that's when Napolitano actually told a whole bunch of Fox-watching Americans that something was up. So the importance of Mueller being in a situation where that is huge news, and day after day, if it takes that long, ideally it would. And he, he points out that Mueller's reservations to getting involved in this are, are well-founded, because it would be a circus, and he's not the circus type. God knows he ain't a camera-seeking type. But he says that's why he is needed. Here's what James' unpronounceable name, starting with a P, says. Muller has a certain Joe Friday just the facts affect, affect, that really doesn't exist anymore in this television age, does it? It doesn't fit who we are now, the sort of, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. But, he says, perversely, that's what makes Mueller the best person to star in the television adaptation of the report he wrote. An unlikely star, but it will have an impact that the report itself has not. And partly because, of course, the Attorney General, Barr, misrepresenting it, We have a call. Caller, go ahead. How you doing today? I'm okay. Hey, hey, Lynn, what is wrong with the American people? Do they live under a rock? My God, you don't have to watch cable TV 24-7. You just get a glance at a newspaper. The obstruction justice was done in plain sight. So how Stupid are the American people. I don't even get that. I don't even have to read that Mueller report. I see it in plain sight. I saw him talking out there saying stuff. He right. was obstructing all the way. So it's so stupid. If they haven't figured it out by now, they're never going to figure it out. They're just dumbasses. That's all they are. Just dumbass people. Because, I mean, it's right in front of you. He's still doing it. He's still obstructing justice. You can right. see it every day. He's right. lying and he's got all his goons lying for him. 
I mean, it's, I just frustrate the hell. It makes me worry about the election when you get that too many dumbass people out there. They can't even figure it out on their own. I mean, you pick a newspaper or anything, magazine, every day just keeps piling up, piling up. No, they don't see it. Give me a break. Come on. <laughs> well said. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Okay. Thank we'll you. See you. Have Bye. a good weekend. Yeah, right. Bye. Bye. I'll have a good weekend. I'm not going to in any way. I'm, I will not watch any television news. <clears throat> Let's cheer ourselves up with some obituaries. Jesus, God. Here's a truly awful human being, Klaus von Bülow. Remember him? I guess you had to be around. When was that playing out? It was like in the 70s, right? Um, no, it was in the 80s. Okay. It was one of those trials of the century. Klaus von Bülow, the Danish-born, you know, uh, socialite, rich, despicable person. Uh, was convicted of attempting to murder the woman he married because she was rich as holy hell. She was an some heiress of some kind. She had tons and tons of money. He married her and then immediately started screwing around. And one of the people he was screwing around with who ended up testifying at the trial had put him under pressure saying, I'm, you ain't going to screw around with me anymore if you don't divorce her. But he wouldn't divorce her because there was a clause in their you know, marriage contract, prenup, that if he divorced her, he wasn't going to get a bunch of money, right? And that's what he would married her for. So the only way he'd get the money is if, he, if she died. So she was a diabetic, and he apparently injected her with uh, insulin. She fell into a coma, but came out of it, and then he tried it again. <laughs> and this time she didn't come out of it. Um, I, I don't know. It was made into a movie. Jeremy Irons played Von Bulow, and Glenn Close, yeah, played uh, his wife, Sunny. Um, so he got convicted, and and sentenced in 1982. It says here to a 30 years in prison. Didn't serve a day. Enter the knight on shining armor, Alan Effing Dershowitz, Harvard professor. It was Dershowitz who masterminded some kind of an appeal process that got Von Bülow a new trial. And then um, in that new trial with a new attorney, he got acquitted. Everyone knew he was guilty. He got acquitted says in his obit that it was the most publicized, one of the most publicized legal contests in the second half of the 20th century. 
television offered gavel to gavel coverage of the trials. Now, I don't remember that. I don't think I watched. Dershowitz wrote a big book about it. The book led to the film. Von Bulow was a despicable character. His father was a Nazi. Seriously. His father was a Nazi who, after uh, the war, uh, was arrested and um, and convicted as a Nazi collaborator and uh, served time in prison and then dropped dead uh, or something. And then uh, Klaus uh, went off, um, uh, you know, looking for uh, rich women to marry. And in 1966, he found one, this American woman, heiress. Uh, what a vile person. So after he gets off, and everyone knows he murdered her, he still sort of um, stays in uh, society, invited to some of the best parties, uh, seen around town. Um, Truman Capote even came, figured in to getting him off, although he wouldn't have intended to because Capote was a friend of the of the wife in the coma. But Capote, according to Dershowitz, uh, told Dershowitz that Sonny was always injecting herself. And the, the way they got Von Bulow off was suggesting that Sonny herself had, because she was popping pills left and right, and not quite in her right mind all the time, had OD'd herself on the insulin, providing enough doubt, I guess, that that second jury let him walk. And um, so Klaus von Bülow became famous, and he didn't mind. He was one of, that's when we started noticing, that's when I started noticing, that this country valued celebrity, um, so that you could be somebody who pretty clearly was a vile human being and probably attempted to kill his wife twice. Um, and he suffered not a bit and in fact became, you know, he was again accepted back into society. And the obit ends with something that he told Dershowitz. And this cements, this quote from him, cements my uh, assessment of Klaus von Bülow being about as loathsome a character as there is. Although we now know we're surrounded by loathsome characters. But he said this after he was acquitted. He says to Dershowitz, Now... After all this unpleasantness, you know, I always get the best tables. He was saying uh, this unpleasantness, but now when I go to a restaurant, it's, you know, oh, Mr. Von Bulow, please let us show you to the best table. Interestingly, Barbara sent this before I even mentioned Dershowitz. 
Any thoughts on Dershowitz, she says. And she's not talking about Klaus von Bülow. She's talking about this vile jerk uh, now coming out and saying that Robert Mueller exceeded his role as... uh, I guess this is the quote from him, from Dershowitz. No prosecutor should ever say or do anything for the purpose of helping one party or the other. I cannot imagine a plausible reason why Mueller went beyond his report. He didn't and gratuitously suggested that President Trump might be guilty except to help Democrats in Congress and to encourage impeachment talk. He didn't. It wasn't his report. What he said on Wednesday is in the report. He just said it again. He said it out loud. Dershowitz goes on, shame on Mueller for abusing his position of trust and for allowing himself to be used for partisan advantage. My brother taught at Harvard Law School for... I think a semester or two as a visiting professor and his opinion of Dershowitz <laughs> uh, is and this is before mine was negative because I sort of thought Dershowitz was okay uh, in a lot of ways and my brother just found him repellent as a person. Um, um, well, I'm in my brother's camp now. Um, Henry writes, Lynn, Nancy Pelosi was on Jimmy Kimmel's show last night. I run hot and cold as far as my confidence in her. I'm pretty hot. I think I feel very secure with her. That is one smart steely woman. Anyway, in this interview on uh, Kimmel's show, she seemed so frail and her speech was coarse. Sometimes she just doesn't make me believe that she's in the driver's seat and actually driving. I want her to be a hawk and she doesn't come across that way. What? Well, I didn't see what you saw, but I saw her earlier, um, last time I saw her, on uh, when she was in San Francisco um, at the Commonwealth Club re- re- responding to uh, Mueller's television appearance. And I thought she was, as usual, smart as a whip. And her... I mean, she's... I don't know. Could you keep up her schedule? Now, I don't know how old you are. I'm younger than she. I cannot. And not, Okay, keep up Nancy Pelosi's schedule. Take on the burdens she carries on her narrow shoulders and do it in full makeup and high heels. Go ahead. I, I, I dare any of us. 
I think she's like a superwoman. I do. How old is she? 87, I think. I mean, seven. no, she's not 87. She's, uh, how old is she? She's in her 80s. Oh, she's not. She's 79. Okay, she's going to be 80. But still, she's older than me. She's almost 80. And I, I find her smart as hell, Henry. I do. Just smart as hell. And I think in taking on Trump, she wins all the time. She flusters him. She freaks him out. She knows how to push his buttons. And he loses all the time in fights with her. He loses. Now, the calculation is, does he really want... His calculation that impeachment would up his chances for re-election. I don't... I think she thinks that's true, too. And I don't know. I don't know. But you know how we all end up with people that whose judgment we sort of defer to in general because their track record is pretty damn good. I I have that level of deference toward Nancy Pelosi. I didn't always. I didn't appreciate. I mean, how do we not appreciate the only woman who has ever held that high a position in our government? Hillary didn't make president, but Nancy is uh, two heartbeats away from the presidency as Speaker of the House and controls half of uh, one of the legislative branches. She's an extraordinarily powerful woman. And anybody who takes her on loses including in her own caucus. I don't know. I'd hang with her, personally. But, you know, that's just me. I want to do another obit here from the horrors of Klaus von Bülow. I was really upset to see this one because he's younger than me. And I adored him. Leon Redbone, a voice like no other. How did they des- in, in this obituary? They describe his voice as it says here he sang in a deep, gravelly voice that com- that combined singing and mumbling, <laughs> which is true. It combines singing and mumbling. I so loved his stuff. And he was unclassifiable, Leon Redbone. Sat there with his acoustic guitar and his shades on and hat and this deadpan delivery and that wondrous voice. And what they say here is, He channeled performers and songwriters from Ragtime and Delta Blues, Tin Pan Alley, and more. And all this during, you know, when rock was the thing. 
and uh, I, I, I just thought he was, his first album was uh, out in um, 1975 called On the Track, and that included the songs, uh, you know, My Walking Stick, and and if you haven't heard him doing my walking stick, it is just the greatest. Hey, Amy, could you maybe find Leon Redbone singing my walking stick, and maybe we could even go out with that um, on the show today, if you could find it. And my walking stick is, I mean, that's an old, it's an Irving Berlin song. And I never heard it. I know I've heard a lot of Irving Berlin, but I never heard this. But man, he doing that, and he did Hoagie Carmichael songs, and um, one uh, New York Times article in 1976, a critic talking about this new guy who'd appeared, called him an almost catatonic folky. So they put him in like a folk singing uh, category. Uh, says here his stage persona remained consistent for his entire career. Uh, just this deadpan. Uh, turns out he was born in Cyprus. And it's unclear whether he was an American citizen or a Canadian citizen. Somebody once said they saw a Canadian passport, but Leon refused to be pinned down. And they don't they don't clarify it in 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 the New York Times obit. Uh, he was living in Toronto in the mid '60s, and uh, in the early '70s, Bob Dylan saw him perform at the Mariposa Folk Festival and went nuts. And told Rolling Stone, "You gotta you gotta go look at this guy. He's amazing." And here's a quote from Dylan. He interests me. I've heard he's anywhere from 25 to 60 years old. I've been this close, and I can't tell. He's just this sort of odd, enigmatic man that is so funny. Um, he died, by the way, at the age of 69. So when Dylan saw him, he was, he was in his 20s. Um, and, and and Dylan just kept saying, "My God, you got to see him." He died uh, in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is where he had been. Grammarly can help. Um. Wow, Leon Redbone. I'll tell you what. Let's play my walking stick and to say goodbye, and uh, rather than our usual thing, and um, and I'll take my leave too. Leon Redbone. Without my walking stick, I'll go insane. I can't look my best to feel undressed.
Without my cane 